I don't know about you, but I'm spending a lot of time listening these days. As my physical room to move about contracts, thanks to lockdown, so I'm enjoying taking voyages inside my head, carried along by music. Now, the choice of vessels in my harbour is impressive. I can embark on a whole series of different journeys depending on my mood. Jazz, classical, soft folky reminiscence or driving angry rock. But whatever the journey, there's a pretty good chance a guitar will feature somewhere in the mix. Confession, I'm a guitar player. I have been since I was 12 years old and managed to persuade my parents to let me trade the trumpet I was learning as part of the school orchestra for a six-string guitar I'd seen in a shop window. But even allowing for my bias and your many different musical tastes, you'd probably agree that taking the guitar out of our oral landscape would leave it a poorer place. And it would certainly be a commercially poorer one as well. The market for guitars is booming. It's currently worth around a half a billion dollars and is estimated to grow steadily. COVID-19's been an important sales agent in this, nudging millions of people to try and fulfil their dreams of converting air guitar playing skills to the real thing. Fender, one of the biggest names in the industry, had the best sales of its 80-year history during 2020. While James Curley, CEO of the market leader Gibson, commented that during last year, we literally couldn't deliver enough. Everything we were making, we could sell. But how did the guitar get here? And what role did innovation play in the process? Well, it's an instrument with a long history. In fact, if you take the idea of stretching strings across some kind of frame and letting the vibrations conjure sounds, then we're back at least 3,000 years BC. There's a stone carving of a Hittite musician entertaining at a Babylonian party in the ancient Orient Museum in Istanbul, and what he's playing looks suspiciously close to being a guitar. It clearly didn't take long for others to catch on to the concept of a chordophone, which is the technical term for a device which generates sound in this fashion. The Greeks and the Romans had their harps and lyres. The Egyptians added the lute, which was originally developed in Mesopotamia. And the Moors of North Africa had the oud, an instrument with a lute-like body and a long neck, probably based on a dried gourd and later fashioned out of wood. But as it journeyed across to Spain, it morphed into what we'd recognise today, a multi-stringed, wooden-necked device. Encyclopaedia Britannica has the origins of the Spanish guitar as something emerging in the 16th century, deriving from the guitarra latina, a late medieval instrument with a wasted body and four strings. But along with the lute, mandolin and other derivatives of the plucked instrument variety, it became a widely played instrument over the next 400 years. Its popularity came partly from its versatility. It could sit centre stage in an orchestral concerto, but it could also accompany a lone balladeer or form the centrepiece of a fiery flamenco stomp. And it was partly due to its portability. It was the ideal travelling instrument for the itinerant musician. You could find it in taverns and town squares, concert halls and at court, and it spread far and wide, migrating from Europe with the early settlers to the emerging New World. 
Now, from an innovation point of view, the guitar followed a classic pattern. Plenty of experimentation with materials, number of strings, neck length, a host of other parameters in search of the right balance of sound and functionality. And then there was the emergence of a dominant design. The configuration which set the pattern laid down the roadway along which the development of the instrument would then travel in an extended period of continuous improvement. Now, most sources agree it was the Spanish guitar builder Antonio Torres Jurado who did this in 1850 with his invention of the fan-braced design. Bracing the hollow body of a guitar with struts of wood meant it didn't keep collapsing in on itself because of the tension of the strings, and you could build a big enough body to give you the balance of tone, projection and volume which players required. But... By the 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, the guitar had come up against an increasingly frustrating limit. It wasn't loud enough. You could have the sweetest, most lyrical tone, but if you were trying to make yourself heard amongst the dance bands which emerged as the 20th century dawned, you had a problem. Innovation, of course, thrives on these conditions, and a whole new breed of entrepreneurs began experimenting to try and make the louder guitar. They explored many routes, making the whole instrument bigger, but of course more cumbersome, changing materials like the steel guitars pioneered by the National Company, and playing around with alternative sound amplification principles, like the resonator cone, a kind of dustbin lid built into the guitar top which vibrates like a speaker and replaces the simple sound hole of the guitar. Now, this last was particularly embraced by the Dopraya brothers, Slovakian immigrants to the United States who set up the Dobro Company and gave their name to the guitar variant whose haunting sound instantly conjures the wide prairie landscape with its rolling tumbleweed that you see in a thousand films. So, plenty of innovation, but no real breakthrough. Nothing radical enough to bring about a step change in oral performance. Until entrepreneurs began to borrow ideas from different industries and to import alternative technologies. As Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones expertly explained in a BBC interview looking at the history of the electric guitar, all they did was put a phone in it. But then, after a a trademark raspy guffaw, he added, but it was the right phone at the right time. Electronics in the early 20th century had already given us the telephone, the radio, the gramophone, and it had become clear that converting sound waves into electrical impulses and then reversing the process, offered opportunities for amplifying instruments like the guitar. Patents from around 1910 reinforced Keith Richards' analysis. People were putting telephone transmitters inside violins and banjos. By the 1920s, hobbyists used the, by then widely available, carbon button microphones from telephones, attaching them to the bridge of their instruments. Unfortunately, these had a very weak signal, and as you increase the sensitivity to try and make it louder, the microphone picked up other sounds and generated the unpleasant squeal of feedback. The breakthrough came in 1931, when George Beauchamp designed a one-piece instrument, cast in metal 
and resembling more a frying pan than a guitar. Harry Watson of the National Company takes the credit for having built this design, which qualifies as the world's first electric guitar. The key innovation was the use of an alternative device to convert the instrument's vibrations into electrical signals which could then be amplified. It was an arrangement of coils of wire wrapped around a metal core designed to pick up the signal. So the concept of the pickup belongs to Watson's friend Arnold Rickenbacker. The idea worked. And in 1932, the two of them formed the Rickenbacker Company, and in 1937, they were awarded a patent. That breakthrough fired the starting pistol for another innovation race, with established manufacturers rushing to bring imitations to the market, and entrepreneurs looking to exploit the new possibilities in new, and hopefully better, designs. There was plenty of innovation space to play in. Not least, dealing with the main limitation of the frying pan idea, which was that that was designed as a lap steel guitar, essentially designed to be played horizontally with the instrument resting on the knees. Whilst the Hawaiian sound associated with such an instrument was popular, it had its limits. Rickenbacker quickly came up with their electro-Spanish Model B, which was designed to be played upright and with a strap the kind of instrument we know and love today. Some sought to move the new idea to scale through celebrity endorsement. The Gibson Company was one of the biggest players in the rapidly growing musical instrument industry, and they launched their Electro-Spanish 150 with the backing of the celebrated jazz guitarist Charlie Christian. And it had a price tag of $150. So they were really trying to emulate Henry Ford's idea of designing something which would appeal to the masses because it would at a price that the masses could afford. There was plenty of pent-up demand in that market. With the expansion of the dance band era, musicians needed to play louder. But the limits of the design were still there. Even if you replaced the sound hole with F-holes or did away with it altogether, you still had the problem of sound waves bouncing around inside a hollow-bodied instrument and generating unwanted feedback. Enter a user innovator, one Les Paul. Now, he was already a guitar player with a big following on the country and western circuit, but he was also a tinkerer. And in 1940, he came up with a solution to the feedback problem. Why not dispense with the hollow body altogether and make the guitar solid? He built the log, a wooden post with a pickup attached along which he stretched the strings. Recognising he might have trouble pitching his radically new design, he disguised it by gluing two halves of an old Epiphone guitar to the wooden post to give it a more familiar guitar shape. But this was just a cosmetic addition to reduce the shock factor. In terms of the sound, it made no contribution whatever. But in classic user innovator style, he wasn't particularly interested in producing and marketing the device himself. He had plenty to do as a performer. So he took it to the Gibson Company, reasoning that with their history, they might be interested in a radical innovation like this. Gibson had built their success on 
and took their name from, the ideas of an eccentric mandolin maker who revolutionised the design of that instrument back in 1910, doing away with the round-bellied Neapolitan model and replacing it with the flat-back variety. Unfortunately, for them as it later turned out, their appetite for radical innovation had diminished and their response was decidedly lukewarm. And so Les shelved his project and went back to playing country and western. Now, innovation's often like a soup. Market needs and enabling technologies being stirred together by various entrepreneurs coming slowly to the boil. And as it reaches the right temperature, so a breakthrough idea bubbles to the surface in two or three places simultaneously. So it wasn't entirely surprising that in another part of the country, someone else was playing with a similar idea to Les Paul. This one was taking shape in the workshop of Paul Bigsby, an engineer with a passion for two things, country music and motorcycles. He shared these with a friend, Merle Travis, who was another successful country singer who talked about his ideas for improving the guitar that he played, making it easier to tune, capturing the sustain which you could get from a steel-bodied guitar, but without the feedback. Now, Bixby built guitars as a sideline to his motorcycle business and was able to bring Travis's ideas to life. Together, they developed their own version of a solid-bodied electric guitar. And meanwhile, in another part of the galaxy, or at least further up the road in California, another player was about to join the game. Leo Fender wasn't a guitar player. His instrument was the saxophone. He was an accountant by training, though his passion was not music but electronics. He'd spent his childhood disassembling and rebuilding radios and enjoyed exploring the growing potential of this new technology. While he was working as a bookkeeper in Anaheim, he was contracted by a local band leader to build a public address, a PA system. It was a success and he was asked to build six more. That nudged the entrepreneur in him. In 1938, along with his wife, he borrowed $600 and opened a radio repair shop, Fender Radio Service. And he quickly built up a business repairing and servicing the amplifiers and occasionally the guitars for the many roadhouse bands coming through. This was a valuable apprenticeship. Through the many projects he worked on, he developed a deep understanding of the typical problems and how to improvise solutions to fix them quickly. He was continuously prototyping and experimenting with new ideas and implementing those ideas in the next project which came through his door. He wasn't alone. In particular, he shared ideas with another enthusiast, Doc Kaufman, who was a lap steel guitar player with a day job working for the Rickenbacker Company. The two of them played around with ideas and eventually launched their company, K&F, to build lap steel guitars. In 1944, they patented their version, incorporating Fender's own design for a pickup. Kaufman left in 1946, and Leo renamed the company Fender Manufacturing. He worked on their ideas further, coming up with a thin, solid-body electric guitar which would be easy to tune, wasn't too heavy, and crucially didn't feed back in the way hollow-bodied machines did pretty much the specification which Merle Travis had brought to Paul Bigsby. 
1950, Fender launched the Fender Esquire and then, having added a second pickup, renamed it the Broadcaster in 1951. The threat of a lawsuit from the rival Gretsch company forced him to change the name and so the guitar became known as the Telecaster. The new wave was about to break. Fender's skills weren't just in electronics. He was a pretty good listener too. He'd picked up on plenty of feedback from customers in his service business and so instead of improving on the Telecaster for his next product, he set about designing a new machine incorporating many of those ideas. This led to a guitar which had the strengths of the Telecaster, but which added innovations in pickups, three instead of two, giving the player plenty of control via a five-way switch. The result was the Stratocaster, launched in 1954 and about to change the world of music. Now, its success owed a lot to timing. The growth of rock and roll changed the format of dance bands towards smaller trios and quartets, and the sound and capability of the machine lent itself perfectly to the loud driving style that was coming through. Fender also had a hand with changing the shape of the back line of the band, displacing the double bass with his solid-bodied precision bass, introduced quietly alongside the Telecaster, but in its way just as revolutionary. The Stratocaster appeared in Buddy Holly's hands on the cover of his 1957 album, and around the world, musicians began taking notice. In the UK, Hank Marvin, lead guitarist in Cliff Richard's backing band The Shadows, was the, one of the first to own one, and their success with a string of instrumental hits firmly established the new sound. Not least in the ears of a generation of youngsters who aspired to own one and make their own music. As one of them, Pink Floyd's Dave Gilmour said, the Stratocaster is about as perfect as a guitar gets. In the hands of another, one James Marshall Hendricks, the machine was pushed to its limits, not least through exploiting the very feedback which Leo Fender, Paul Bigsby and Arnold Rickenbacker had worked so hard to try and reduce. The response from the other guitar makers was once again one of copy and develop, rapid imitation and improvement. Gibson were quick to pick up on the new trend, but had a long, hard slog up the learning curve to reach the point where they could master the new tricks of building solid-bodied guitars with complex pickups. But in 1955, they launched their new guitar and went looking for another celebrity to help them promote their new product. They recruited one of the top performing acts of the time, Mary Ford, and her partner, Les Paul the man who they remembered as the guy with the broomstick with the pickups on it, and whose ideas they had turned down a decade earlier. They made slight amends by naming the guitar after him, and alongside the Stratocaster, it's still one of the most sought-after models, still in production, and has been widely imitated around the world. Not least because of the exposure it was given by, at the time, a rising young blues guitarist, Eric Clapton. The rest is recent musical history. The market for both professionals and increasingly amateur musicians grew, and with it a rising tide of innovation. Variations on the basic dominant design established by Leo Fender, Les Paul, Merle Travis and others proliferated, 
with different shapes, different materials, extensive improvements around the electrics and so on. Bringing us to today's lockdown world where, unless the person in the next door apartment is at the early stages of trying to master thrash metal riffs, those innovations have helped create the soundscape into which we can escape, whether as players or listeners. (laughs) 